אמן אמן אני אומר לכם, מי שאינו נכנס אל מכלה הצאן דרך השער, אלא מטפס בדרך אחרת, גנב הוא ושודד. הנכנס דרך השער הוא רועה הצאן. לא יפתח שומר השער, והצאן שמות בקולו. הוא קורא לצאנו בשם, ומוציא אותן. לאחר שהוציא את כל אשר לו, הוא הולך לפניהן, והצאן הולכות אחריו, כי מכירות הן את קולו. אחרי זר לא תלכנה, כי אם תברחנה ממנו, מפני שאינן מכירות את קולם של זרים. את המשל הזה אמר להם ישוע, אך הם לא הבינו את פשר הדברים שדיבר אליהם. הוסיף ישוע ואמר, אמן אמן אני אומר לכם, אני הוא שער הצאן. כל אשר באו לפניי, גנבים הם ושודדים, והצאן לא שמעו להם. אני השער. איש אם ייכנס דרכי, ייוושע. הוא ייכנס ויצא וימצא מרעה. אין הגנב בא אלא לגנוב ולהרוג ולהשמיד. אני באתי כדי שיהיו להם חיים, ובשפע שיהיו להם. אני הרועה הטוב. הרועה הטוב נותן את נפשו בעד הצאן. השכיר, שאיננו רועה, והצאן אינן צאנו, כראותו את הזאב בא, עוזב את הצאן ובורח, והזאב חוטף ומפזר אותן. שכן הבורח אינו אלא שכיר, ואין הוא דואג לצאן. אני הרועה הטוב, אני מכיר את שלי, ושלי מכירים אותי. כשם שהאב מכיר אותי, ואני מכיר את האב, ואת נפשי נותן אני בעד הצאן. גם צאן אחרות יש לי, אשר אינן מן המכלה הזה. עלי להנהיג גם אותן. הן את קולי תשמענה, ויהיה עדר אחד ורועה אחד. משום כך אוהב אותי האב, משום שאני נותן את נפשי, ואקח אותה שוב. איש לא נטל אותה ממני, אלא שאני נותן אותה מעצמי. יש לי סמכות לתת אותה, ויש לי סמכות לקחת אותה שוב. את המצווה הזאת קיבלתי מאת אבי. הבשורה על פי התלמיד יוחנן, פרק 10, פסוקים 1-18. Yes, indeed, I tell you the person who doesn't enter the sheep pen through the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. But the one who goes in through the gate is the sheep's own shepherd. This is the one the gatekeeper admits, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep, each one by name, and leads them out. After taking out all that are his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They never follow a stranger, but will run away from him because strangers' voices are unfamiliar to them. Yeshua used this indirect manner of speaking with them, but they didn't understand what he was talking to them about. So Yeshua said to them again, Yes, indeed, I tell you that I am the gate for the sheep. All those who have come before me have been thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If someone enters through me, he will be safe and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life, life in its fullest measure. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
The hired hand, since he isn't a shepherd and the sheep aren't his own, sees the wolf coming, abandons the sheep, and runs away. Then the wolf drags them off and scatters them. The hired worker behaves like this because that's all he is, a hired worker. So it doesn't matter to him what happens to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I laid down my life on behalf of the sheep. Also I have other sheep which are not from this pen. I need to bring them, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it away from me. On the contrary, I lay it down of my own free will. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This is what my Father commanded me to do. The Good News of Messiah Yeshua, according to the Talmud Yohanan, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. A joke, if you will. So the Messiah Yeshua himself is sitting with his twelve Jewish homies at the last Passover Seder, and he says to them, Brothers, this matzah you're eating is my body. And they say to him, No way. And Yeshua says, Yahweh. Just a little messianic humor for you guys. Don't take me too seriously. Shalom, shalom, uvruchim hashavim. Peace be upon you, and welcome back to another scandalous, provocative, and controversial sixth installment of Finding Higher Ground. The demons better panic. Here comes Seattle's own manic messianic, your host, Gotti Higher.
Alright, welcome back. I know that there have been a slew of quote-unquote holidays here as of recent. So for those who celebrate such holidays, I hope that you had a blasty blast with your family. I hope you're all well. I hope everything is going well with you in your life. And um, welcome to 2022. Yeah, I can't believe it. 2022. Very surreal. Very surreal. Alrighty, guys. So before we get into the heart of things, I'm going to acknowledge some people who deserve credit for helping me make all of this happen. Namely, Team Audacity. So the people at Team Audacity have come together and joined forces to bring us amazing professional audio mixing software that's completely free. You cannot get it anywhere else except teamaudacity.org. That's www.teamaudacity.org. Another shout-out goes to Anchor and Spotify, because now I'm on both platforms. You can find me on Anchor and you can find me on Spotify. Thank you very much for letting me put my podcasts on your platforms. I greatly appreciate it. To the people at Epidemic Sound all the way in Stockholm, Sweden, I appreciate your vast database of sound effects and background music. Thank you for your services. To the website hebrewforchristians.com That's hebrewforchristians.com The word Hebrew, the number 4, and the word christians.com Last podcast, I made a horrible mistake, and I ranted about a hebrewforchristians.net I don't know what that was all about. I humbly apologize to all the people at HebrewForChristians.com for getting that all wrong. The proper website is Hebrew for Christians, the word Hebrew, the number four, and the word Christians.com. And my final shout-out will be going to another ministry called One for Israel. Thank you very much, guys at One for Israel. You guys are amazing for the work that you do here in America and in Israel, bringing Israelis and Palestinians to know Messiah Yeshua in his full glory. You are to be blessed sevenfold for all the work that you do on behalf of Messiah Yeshua. Thank you. Quick recap on the ending of episode 5. I was uh, stating that uh, there is possible, some possible self-worship going on within the Gentile body of Messiah, within the Gentile church, that the church is kind of worshipping itself more than it is worshipping Messiah Yeshua. And I also left a little bit of a challenge to the pastors of the Gentile body of Messiah here in America and the world in general, but we're going to start with the States. Um, my challenge was a very simple one, but nobody is going to do it. Very few, very few Gentile pastors here in the States are going to take up my challenge. My challenge is, bring the Jewishness of Yeshua the Messiah back into your church and see what happens. If you want a real revival, then I suggest that you take my advice. And I'm not calling upon you to start living under Torah. But if you want to understand the Messiah, then you have to understand what he came to complete. 
for some crazy reason, um, I feel like churches here in this country have a very hard time embracing anything Jewish. And I really don't understand why that is, since the Messiah that they claim to believe in, put their trust in and worship, is Jewish. So please, can somebody explain this to me? Why churches and pastors here in this country refrain from having anything to do with anything Jewish, and yet you worship a Jewish messiah? Um, I'd love an explanation. So what I'm presenting for you guys today, believer and non-believer alike, anyone who's daring to listen to my voice, the throngs of people, all nine and a half of you, thank you for your time, I appreciate it. Today the heart of the episode is going to be an article that I found on this amazing website called HebrewForChristians.com Okay. Uh, by one John J. Parsons. This was first published in 2005. And uh, this article is about Israel and the church. And I'm going to go into lengthy discussion about the relationship between the two. This is a crucial issue for you to understand what really is going on in the world as far as the two Christianity and Judaism. This is a critical key issue within the body of Messiah. It is a key critical issue for me and my brother Les Paul Stewart who is currently residing in Greeley, Colorado. Shout out to you, my brother. I know you're listening and uh, he and I are going to be doing some podcasts in the future. We're going to be uh, getting together and putting our two cents into issues. And uh, so, yes, he will be joining me. He will be joining me at a later date. And uh, so this issue, this topic of Israel and the church and the dynamic relationship between the two is on both of our hearts. I have known Les Paul, yes, that's his name, capital L, capital P, no space. He's actually named after the guitar. True story. I have known my buddy Les Paul Stewart, my brother and messiah, Les Paul Stewart, for 15 years and counting, and I have never yet have argued with the man about any kind of doctrine. We've been always on the same page and on the same word for... 15 plus years that can only be achieved with the guidance of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. I value this man's counsel and advice more than gold. This man is the Samwise to my Frodo, the Abbot to my Costello, and the Jonathan to my David. And I appreciate you, brother. Shalom. So without any further delay, let's get into this, Israel and the Church. Understanding some theological options by a one John J. Parsons first published in 2005. When studying the Jewish roots of Christianity, certain questions often arise regarding the nature of the Church, the nature of Israel, and the relationship between them. 
Do Gentile Christians become Jewish on account of their relationship to Yeshua? My answer to that question is yes. Does the church somehow replace the Jewish people in God's plan as the new Israel? My answer to that question is absolutely not. Exactly how should we understand the relationship between the church and Israel today? Let's find out. In general, Christian theology has developed three different, three different interpretive systems that attempt to answer such questions. Replacement theology, the church and Israel refer, refer to the same group of people. Separation theology, the church and Israel refer to different groups of people. And remnant theology, the church and Israel overlap in some manner. As we will see, each of these systems leads to radically different conclusions, but before we attempt to explore them in detail, we will need to define some terms. In particular, we will need to define Israel and the church. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with defining Israel, because I kind of sort of already did that in episode 5. So if you want to, you know, do a little recap on your own and... Uh, look for the definition of what Israel is, I, I kind of sort of did that already, so I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time on that one, but I'm of course going to recommend all of you and any one of you who is uh, listening to me uh, right now to, uh, of course, you know, you can check it out on your own at Hebrew4Christians.com uh, and uh, get a, you know, a much clearer outline of, of, of the definition of Israel. What I'm more concerned and want to focus on is the definition of the church. So here we go. Defining church. The word church does not appear in English translations of the Old Testament, as it does in the New Testament. The Greek translation of the OT, Old Testament, called the Septuagint, uses the word ecclesia, from ek and kaleo to call, for two Hebrew words that both refer to as a congregation or assembly, kahal and edah. Let's read that again. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint or LXX, uses the word ecclesia for two Hebrew words that both refer to as a congregation or assembly, kahal and eda. Kahal from the Hebrew word kol, voice. Actually, we uh, Israeli folk used that word up until today. Kahal means audience. Yeah, it is generally translated as assembly or congregation, though other words are sometimes used. The Septuagint uses the word synagogue. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It should, because that's where synagogue comes from. For the Hebrew word edah, the Septuagint uses the word synagogue for the Hebrew word edah, which is usually translated as assembly. Most Hebrew scholars consider kahal and edah to be synonyms. See Numbers chapter 20 verses 1 through 13. Even though they are based, in, uh, based on different word roots. Remember what I told you about um, pretty much every Hebrew word is based on a three-letter root system. I will be touching on said system more in future podcasts. So the quick summary of those two words, kahal and eda, kahal meaning congregation, assembly, company, multitude, 
In the New Testament, it means church or synagogue. And Edah, Old Testament, is assembly, sometimes congregation. New Testament is synagogue exclusively. So there you have that. What is puzzling is that the Greek translators did not appear to be consistent when translating kahal, since sometimes they chose the word ekklesia, but in 36 places they chose the word synagoge. The word eda, however, seems to be consistently translated as synagoge. I probably am not pronouncing that right, but it sounds authentic enough, so I'm going to go with it. From the author's comparison of the terms, it seems that the word kahal conveys the idea of a general assembly, whereas the word eda conveys the idea of assembling at a specific time, mo'ed, appointed time, or at a particular place of meeting, ohel mo'ed, ohel mo'ed, which would be this, is this in, in this specific instance, ohel mo'ed means the tent of the tabernacle. The tent of the appointed time, I guess. For a particular purpose. Let's read that again. From the author's comparison of the terms, it seems that the word kahal conveys the idea of a general assembly, whereas the word eda conveys the idea of assembling at a specific time or at a, or at a particular place of meeting for a particular purpose. In other words, the kahal is simply a group of some kind, whereas the eda is an assembly brought together for a specific purpose, often for a meeting with Adonai Elohei Israel, the Lord God of Israel. The reason he is providing, the author is providing all of this detail is because in the New Testament the word ecclesia is translated as church in our English Bibles and the question naturally arises as to whether the, this ecclesia is an extension of the kahal or eda of the Old Testament or if it refers to something entirely new in God's plan and purposes. This is perhaps the crucial question and a lot of the discussion concerning the relationship between the quote-unquote church and Israel hinges on how we decide to answer it. It appears to be a significant fault of various English translations of the Christian Bible, quote-unquote Christian Bible, that the word church was translated for the Greek word ecclesia in the New Testament since this suggests an anti-Jewish bias in their work by implying that there is a radical discontinuity between Israel and the ecclesia of Yeshua, i.e. the church. In other words, if the same Greek word ecclesia is used in both the LXX, the Septuagint, and the New Testament, then why was a new word invented for it in the English version of the New Testament? Why not rather translate the word as it was used in the Septuagint, or better still, as it was used in the Old Testament scriptures? Let's read that question one more time, because it's really, really good. If the same Greek word, ecclesia, is used in both the Septuagint and the New Testament, then why was a new word coined for its usage in the English translation of the New Testament? Why not rather translate the word as it was used in the Septuagint, or better still, as it was used in the Old Testament scriptures? Actually, those were two questions, and they were excellent questions. Why indeed? In the New Testament sense, the word ecclesia refers to, a, to the group of called-out people from every tribe and tongue in covenant with God by means of their trust in Messiah Yeshua. 
In particular, this ecclesia is composed of only those people who confess their faith that Yeshua, Jesus, is none other than Adonai come in the flesh, who died as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice for their sins, was buried and resurrected from the dead. Romans chapter 10, verses 9-10, 1 John chapter 2, verses, verse 22, etc. Historically understood, the ecclesia mentioned in the New Testament was founded by a Torah-observant Jew and began with the Jewish people. Galatians 4.4, Romans 15.8 The first followers of Yeshua were all Jews, as were all the apostles and writers of the New Testament. The quote-unquote church was therefore born among Jewish people in Jerusalem. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, i.e. Shavuot, was entirely Jewish, copiously quoting from the prophets and David, which would have meant little to any Gentiles in earshot if there were any. It is likely, therefore, that the 3,000 people that were saved that day would have been all Jewish. Acts 2, 1-41 These earliest members of the new church met regularly at the temple, in the temple, where Gentiles were explicitly excluded. Acts 2, 46 Note that the, Apostle Peter, the apostles Peter and John are recorded to have gone to the temple for prayer during the time of the Mincha, afternoon sacrifices, Acts 3.1. The ministry of the apostles continued exclusively among the Jewish people. The ministry of the apostles continued exclusively among the Jewish people, among who were, quote, thousands who believed and were zealous for the Torah, Acts 21.20, unquote. Even after they were imprisoned but miraculously escaped, an angel told them to, quote, go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life, unquote. Acts 5.20 When Stephen was called before the high priest and the council, he gave, he gave a defense that was thoroughly Jewish, encompassing the entire history of Israel before he was martyred, Acts 7. Even Peter's vision and visit to the house of Cornelius a ger tzedek, which was referred to as a god-fearer, I believe a, it would, it's a title that's given to a Gentile. Who, a Gentile who fears the God of Israel is called a ger tzedek, which literally means a righteous alien. That would be the direct translation of those two words. So even Peter's vision and visit to the house of Cornelius, who is a ger tzedek, who attended synagogue and observed Jewish customs and traditions, Acts 10, was subject to a crisis of conscience for him. First, in his, visions, in his vision, he said that he would never eat of the unkosher animals shown to him, and second, he had qualms about even entering the house of a non-Jew. This indicates, among other things, how steeped Peter was in the Torah even after spending three years under the teachings of Jesus. A little side note here, um, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there is a school of thought, sorry for that little tick. There is a school of thought that teaches that he might have not have been here for three years, that his ministry is actually one year. I am leaning more towards that school of thought and I have my reasons for leaning that way but i digress another podcast that's right i'm not going anywhere
Likewise, the Apostle Paul, whom the Gentile Church of America and the world too, but for some crazy reason, Christians here in America are uh, so passionate about making Paul happy. The Apostle Paul was an observant Jew. I'm going to say that again for anybody who didn't hear in the back. The Apostle Paul, Shaul of Tarsus, was an observant Jew. He was born in Tarsus, but was brought up in Jerusalem and studied under the famous Rabbi Gamliel, Harav Gamliel, mentioned in the Passover Haggadah. Acts 22.3, this is actually mentioned in scripture. Did this Jewish rabbi reject a Jewish lifestyle after his quote-unquote conversion on the Damascus Road? I don't like that word, conversion. I would prefer completion. That's my personal preference. I am not a converted Jew. I am a completed Jew. That's the difference. We'll get into that later. Paul identified himself as a Jew even to his dying day. Acts 23.6 He confessed, I am, not was, a Pharisee. He even declared that the concerning he even declared that concerning the observance of the Torah he was blameless, which indicates he that he was uh, that he observed a Jewish lifestyle to the very end. Philippians 3:6. Paul testified that he kept the Torah throughout his entire life. Acts 25:7-8. See also Acts 28:17. Paul circumcised Timothy, the son of a Jewish mother and Greek father. He considered Timothy to be Jewish and wanted him to be circumcised before taking him on a trip to assist with the ministry among the Jews. Acts 16.1.3 Paul regularly attended synagogue. He came to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went in, un went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Acts 17, 1-2. Paul went to Jerusalem for the feasts, most likely Passover, at the end of his second journey. There's co biblical coordinates for that. Acts 18, 21, 22, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul took the Nazarite vow. Paul sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. There's five more points here proving how Paul was an observant Jew. Um, so we're going to continue. In its earliest years, the Ecclesia of Yeshua composed a somewhat tolerated subset with lar within larger Israel. After the national tragedy of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, however, evidence of formal Jewish persecution of the followers of Yeshua can be detected. This included the addition of the infamous Birkat Haminim, a blessing composed by the Sanhedrin at Yavne that was added to the weekday Amidah, which invoked a curse on followers of Yeshua as well as the Essenes. Nice. Jews unwilling to recite the Pirkat Haminim were suspected of heresy and subject to cherem, which means excommunication. The rift between the followers of Yeshua and Rabbinic Judaism was intensified during the bloodiest of the Jewish-Roman wars, the Bar Kokhva Revolt, which happened between 132 and 135 AD. The Jewish sage 
the Jewish sage Rabbi Akiva convinced the Sanhedrin at Yavne to support the revolt and actually regarded its leader, Shimon Bar Kochva, to be the Jewish Messiah. Hmm. Since the Jewish followers of Yeshua could not support such a claim, and therefore could not support the war, the divide between rabbinical Judaism and the early church became sealed. The early Kehillah. That is, by the way, uh, the word that is used in my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew New Testament, is the word for church, is the word Kehillah. Just going to put that there. Concurrent with the rejection of the Ecclesia of Yeshua by the leaders of ethnic Israel, more and more Gentiles came to faith and the Jewish roots of Yeshua began to be forgotten. This quote-unquote forgetfulness was solidified by various Gentile Christian teachers of the first few centuries who, influenced by Greek philosophy, advocated severing the Ecclesia from its historic Jewish roots. How absolutely and utterly preposterous is this. The Gentile Church then came into prominence as a distinct entity from Israel with its own mission and purpose. Sampling the teaching of many, sampling the teaching of many of the early Gentile Christian leaders reveals the gentilization of the Ecclesia. And here is a long list of all the uh, really special people that helped uh, remove the Jewishness from Yeshua the Messiah. Marcion of Sinope. He, I heard of this guy. I heard of this guy. This guy was a Hellenist steeped into the ideas of Plato and Gnosticism and wanted to separate Christianity from any connection with Judaism and the law. Hilarious. Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 AD. An early Christian apologist wrote his dialogue with Trypho or Trypho, T-R-Y-P-H-O, Trypho, Trypho, who knows. Dialogue with Trypho the Jew, in which he claimed that God's covenant with Israel was no longer valid and that the Gentiles had replaced them. Hilarious. Tertullian, I'm probably saying that wrong, 160-220 AD, was another Gentile Christian apologist who blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus. Oregon. Oregon, Oregon, not to be confused with the state. Oregon or Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, 263-339 AD, founded a school in Alexandria, Egypt, that taught the, the allegorial interpretation of scripture. Oregon was, or Origen, was heavily influenced by Neoplatonic Gnosticism. He was also an anti-Semite who accused the Jews of plotting to kill Jesus. Charming fellow. Eusebius, 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 263-339 AD, wrote an influential history of the church that blamed the calamities which befell the Jewish nation on the Jews' role in the death of Jesus. John, Christ John Chrysostom, 344-407 AD, denounced Jews in a series of sermons to Christians who were taking part in Jewish festivals and other Jewish observances. This is absolutely preposterous to me. If anything, what so-called Christians should be taking part in Jewish festivals because they're God's festivals, not necessarily the Jewish people's festivals. But, you guessed it, another podcast.
two more two more dudes who uh, did uh, whatever they could to uh, take the Jewishness out of Messiah Yeshua. Uh, Jerome, 347-420 AD, produced the Latin translation of the Bible, which became the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Mm. He said, Jews are incapable of understanding scripture and should be severely punished until they confess true faith. That's not entirely wrong, but still. Anyway. Augustine of Hippo, 354-430 AD, spiritualized the kingdom of God and introduced amillennial thinking into the Gentile church. Augustine maintained that the Jews deserved death, harsh, but were destined to wander the earth to witness the victory of church over synagogue. Wow. Besides these Gentile church leaders who rejected the Jewish roots of Christianity, various church councils of the 3rd and 4th centuries likewise rejected Jewish influence within the church and abandoned the Jewishness of Yeshua and his ecclesia. How sad. I'm going to use the, the Hebrew word here, kehila. These include the Council of, Council of Elvira, 306 AD, the Council of Nicaea, I heard of that one, 325 AD, and the Council of Antioch, 341 AD. Oh, there's another one, the Council of Laodicea, 434 AD, and so on. These councils went so far as to forbid Jewish and Christian intermarriage, the observance of Passover, and worship on the Sabbath day. Oh. My. Goodness. Are. You. Kidding. Me. I think that Gentile Christians should do all of those things. Not that their salvation is dependent upon it, but it's to do it's to be done in the remembrance of their Messiah. And their Messiah happens to be Jewish. That's the whole point. Anyway, I digress. The reformers tried to return the Gentile church to its early roots, but sadly this did not involve a return to the Jewish roots of the original Kehillah. For example, Martin Luther. Oh, this guy. I know about you, Mr. Luther, you're not a nice person. 1483-1586 Martin Luther became frustrated by Jewish unwillingness to embrace his own interpretation of Christianity. Um, ladies and gentlemen, believer and non-believer, I am here to tell you that there is no such thing as somebody's own interpretation of Christianity. There's only one way to interpret Christianity, and that's through um, hermeneutics, which is not to take the Bible out of its own context. And the context of the Bible is Jewish. Period. There's nothing more to be said about that. So this guy, Martin Luther, became frustrated by Jewish unwillingness to embrace his own interpretation of Christianity and became one of the most bitter anti-Semites in history. His writings described Jews as worse than devils, Jews were poisoners, ritual murderers, and parasites who should be expelled from Germany. He even went so far as to rouse the mob to burn synagogues to the ground and seize Jewish holy books. Later on, Adolf Hitler... Oh, I knew that sounded familiar. Later on, Adolf Hitler would tell Germany that his final solution was just an attempt to finish the work that Luther had begun. Mm. The subject of Christian anti-Semitism is vast and should be soberly studied by all serious seekers of the truth. 
Well, that would mean you, wouldn't it? Because you're a serious seeker of the truth. Are you not? Sure you are. That's why you're listening to me. For an overview of the subject, please see the Wikipedia article entitled Christianity and Antisemitism. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh boy, Wikipedia. And while they do have somewhat of a repertoire about them, I do encourage you to check out the article. It is rather enlightening, and it should be studied soberly. Many definitions of the church offered by today's theologians are essentially Gentile and Western in flavor and perspective, defining it in abstract terms while focusing on the organization of church government, the nature and role of Christian liturgy, and so on. However, in light of the fact that the Gentile church owes its origin to the Jewish Kehillah of Yeshua, it almost seems that there is a conspiracy of silence regarding the church's Jewish heritage, and rarely is there adequate discussion in regarding to God's relationship with Israel today. I'm going to read that again because I think it's really important. However, in light of the fact that the Gentile church owes its origin to the Jewish Kehillah of Yeshua, it almost seems that there is a conspiracy of silence regarding the, the church's Jewish heritage, and rarely is there adequate discussion regarding God's relationship to Israel today. For example, if a Gentile church regards the rebirth of ethnic national Israel in 1948 as a modern-day miracle, it will tend to believe that God has sovereign plans for the nations in addition to his plan for the Gentile church, and therefore separation theology or remnant theology will seem plausible. On the other hand, if a Gentile church regards the rebirth of the state of Israel as an accident of history, it will tend to believe that it is of little theological significance and perhaps even regard its existence with suspicion and even antagonism, the view of replacement theology and most reformed churches. Okay, now you know why I have a beef with most reformed churches. Aha, uh -huh. so I wasn't imagining things. There is a problem here with Gentile churches in this country trying to embrace anything Jewish, and it perplexes me to no end as to why. There are a number of metaphors for the Kehillah of Yeshua given in the New Testament, such as a household, a kingdom, a priesthood, a temple, one new man, a body, a servanthood, a flock, an army, a wife, a bride, a vine, and an olive tree. Each of these needs to be taken into account when considering the relationship of the church to ethnic Israel. Some of these metaphors show obvious parallels to ethnic Israel of the Old Testament, like kingdom, priesthood, flock, wife, vine, etc., while others seem to be unique in reference to those of the Kehillah of Yeshua, body, one new man, bride, olive tree, etc. The author will now survey the three main ways that the various theologians have attempted to understand God's relationship to the church and historic ethnic Israel. And what follows, the author will regularly use the Gentile term church to refer to what the New Testament writings plainly refer to as the Kehillah of Yeshua. Please keep this in mind as you are reading. I think you understood that. I don't think I should read that again. Alright, so, first one is replacement theology. 
The first theological option regarding the relationship of the Gentile Church and Israel is to claim that the Church and Israel actually refer to the same group of people. More specifically, since Israel rejected Yeshua as the Messiah, the Kihila of Yeshua is now the recipient of all the covenantal blessings and promises of Adonai. This is the mainstream view of most Christian theologians today. By the way, if I have any problems pronouncing certain English words, I do apologize. Considering the fact that I did not grow up in this country, I think I'm doing pretty well. Um, last podcast, there was a very um, complex word called hyperbole, and I mispronounced it. So now I know that it's hyperbole and not hyperbole or, hi- or hyperbole. So, sorry about that. Anyway... Replacement theology claims that the church is a new and improved Israel, better than the older tribal version revealed in the Old Testament. In ancient times, the church, Ecclesia, called out ones, was indeed national Israel, but after Yeshua's universal message of love was rejected by the Jews, in ancient times, the church was indeed national Israel, but after... Yeshua's universal message of love was rejected by the Jews, God transferred all the covenants and promises from them to the Christian church. Brother and sister, ladies and gentlemen, believer and non-believer, this is a lie from hell. Okay? Now it sounds a little drastic, but it's true. It is a lie from hell. Let's carry on, shall we? The new covenant given to Israel was therefore fulfilled through the Christian church. This view is called replacement theology because the Christian church now replaces national Israel as the true Kehillah of Adonai, of yud vav Ooh, there's that word that I'm not supposed to say to get, you know, get, get in trouble. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9.6. I don't think that that means what they think that means. Because of their disobedience of the new covenant and the rule of Yeshua, Israel is no longer a chosen nation with any special status or future. Another lie from hell. As Martin Luther said, since the Jews rejected Christ, Messiah, the only thing left to them are the curses found in the Bible, but none of the blessings. Charming chap. Therefore, all the promises about Israel being regathered, restored, and delivered from her enemies in a coming kingdom age are to be allegorized and transferred to the church. And since, and since Yeshua now symbolically reigns from the throne of David, the church's mission is to usher in the kingdom of God upon the earth by means of the worldwide spread of the gospel. That's not entirely wrong. I wouldn't say symbolically reigns. Um, gospel. At the end of the age, Yeshua re- will return to separate the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25, 32, 33, and the eternal kingdom of God will prevail forever. I think that the sheep and the goats is kind of happening right now. If you, if you want my humble opinion, you didn't ask for it, but you're going to get it anyway because you're listening to me in my podcast. Note that one consequence 
Note that one consequence of this view is that the church is not essentially new since it existed before the time of Yeshua as the company of saints who trusted in the God of Israel for their salvation, i.e. the faithful remnant. Since the church is actually a sort of reformed or renewed Israel, it might be more appropriate to consider this view as renewal theology because it implies that the church is a renewed form of faithful Israel. Paradoxically, this leads to the conclusion that Israel needs to be grafted back into the olive tree of the church rather than understanding that the Gentile church is composed of wild olive shoots grafted into the covenants given to Israel. Romans 11 verses 17 to 23 and Ephesians 2:12. By the way, if you haven't read Ephesians, please do. I mean, all of the letters to the churches are fantastic. Ephesians is... They're all fantastic. They're all a different kind of fantastic. They're amazing. Um, I, I wholeheartedly recommend everyone and anyone. Even if you're a non-believer, I, I mean, of course I want you to read the Bible, but, like, I don't even want you to read the Bible in, in a, with, a, with a, an attempt to... Uh, tried to convince you of anything just just read it for reading it you know you know what i'm saying all right i am going to take you further down the rabbit hole and and, and it's a deep rabbit hole the case for replacement theology the case for replacement theology is often made along these lines israel refers to all those who obey the new covenant of yeshua who are thereby called the quote-unquote, true children of Abraham, and heirs according to promise, Galatians 3, 29. In spiritual terms, the church is now the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. Okay, you know what? I have to look at that passage, and I think I'm going to read it to you. I don't know what other Messianic Jewish podcasts you guys listen to, um, but on this one... You're going to hear the word of God for coming out of my mouth. I don't know if you hear the word of God out of, from other ones, but you're going to hear it from me. All right, brothers and sisters, believers and non-believers, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. Galatians 6, verse 16. And I'm reading it out of the complete Jewish study Bible. That's my version that I'm reading. Okay. This is my secret weapon. This Bible right here is my secret weapon. This Bible, and I, and I know that you guys are going to think that this is a very big boast, but believe me when I tell you that this is the Bible that has the potential of unifying the body of Messiah. I'm not kidding. I'm not saying that lightly. It is my goal at the end of the day that every person on the planet that draws breath that calls himself or herself a believer in Yeshua will get one of these Bibles because it's the closest thing that you're going to get to the real deal in my humble opinion. There are so many different versions of scripture out there which I'm going to talk about that why are there 50 bazillion different versions of the Bible? How come there are 500 different denominations, all out of 14 Jews, 
All, all of this out of 14 Jews? Okay. I say 14 because it's Yeshua, the 12, there's 13, and Paul, there's 14. It's actually 15 if you count the guy who replaced Judas. So from 15 Jews, we get 500 and something denominations, and how many versions of the Bible? Doesn't anybody think that there's anything wrong with that? Right, here it is. Galatians 6.16 And as many as order their lives by this rule, Shalom upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. I'm going to read that again. And as many as order their lives by this rule, Shalom upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Alright, I know the true definition of what Israel of God means, and we're, we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna tell you what it means in a minute. And I think you already know what it means. Um, but we'll get, we're gonna clarify that. I'll give you a little hint. It's not the church. It's not just the church, okay? Alright, so let's continue. In spiritual terms, the church is now the Israel of God and is composed of those Jews and Gentiles who are regenerated by means of their faith in Yeshua. Uh, not entirely wrong, but not entirely right either. Matthew 3.9, Luke 3.8, Galatians 3.6.9 National Israel was really just the seed of the future church. I can see that in a way which will eventually restore the entire earth under God's forthcoming dominion. The church is now, oh by the way, uh, if you want coordinates for, for that, is Malachi uh, 1.11, Romans 4.13. The church is now the heir and trustee of God upon the earth, Galatians 3.29. Jesus himself taught that the Jews would lose their spiritual privileges and be replaced by another people. Matthew 21, 43. Uh, wait a minute. Okay, okay. I, I did a quick research, and here is a perfect example of something completely taken out of Jewish context. Alright, listen carefully. It says here, let's, let me find my bearings. The church is now, the church is now, the heir and trustee of God upon the earth. No, no, no. Let me fast forward. Jesus Himself taught that the Jews would lose their spirit, spiritual privilege and be replaced by another people. Matthew twenty one forty three. Well, guess what? I just looked that up, and I read. You gotta, you can't, you cannot take one verse of the scriptures and completely. To, uh, uh, remove it from the rest of what it's what 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 happened before it, and what's going to happen after it. You can't do that. You always have to go back and read more. And so much misinterpretation happens by taking the one verse and extrapolating something that that's not there. And I I'm going to tell you right now that Yeshua himself taught this whole claim. Yeshua himself taught that the Jews would lose their spiritual privileges and be replaced by another people. That is absolutely not true. I went to the Bible. I'm going to go there right now. And I'm going to read it to you what happens a little bit before. Okay? Yeshua said to them, haven't you ever read that in the Tanakh? Yeshua said, 
to them. Verse 42. Where, where am I? Matthew 21, verse 42. Yeshua said to them, Haven't you ever read in the Tanakh, the very rock which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This has come from Adonai, and in our eyes it is amazing. This is what it says in the Tanakh. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given, and it will be given to the kind of people that will produce its fruit. Who is he talking to? It, let's read on in first verse 45. As the head, the head Kohanim and the Purushim listened to his stories, boom. This, yeah, they saw that he was speaking about them. So what was Yeshua really saying in this verse? He, he wasn't saying that the spiritual privileges were going to be taken away from the Jewish people and given to another people. He was saying that the Jewish privileges were going to be taken away from the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time and given to those who were actually doing God's will, which is number one, first and foremost, believing that Yeshua is the Son of Man and, and, and God in the flesh perfect example of how something is extrapolated and taken completely out of its hermeneutics. Look that word up, hermeneutics. You cannot take the Bible out of its own context, and the Bible's context is Jewish. I don't care if it was written in Greek, I don't care if it was written in Klingon, the context of the Bible is Jewish. All right. That's the end of my rant. Let's continue with this article, yes? After the church came into existence on the day of Pentecost, God was finished with national Israel, and today a true Jew is anyone born of the Spirit, whether he was physically born Jewish or not. Um, not entirely wrong. That's not entirely wrong. Romans 2, 28, 29. I don't... I don't... Uh... The fact that God is finished with Israel, that's not true, okay? Because if that was true, then then what's the vision of the dry bones all about? And, and, and again, yeah, 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 you guessed it. Another podcast. Um, da, 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 okay. All the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are now the possessions of the Church of Yeshua, the Church of Jesus. I'm going to use the word Jesus here on purpose because Yeshua would not agree with this at all. Yes, I, I, I think I can, I think I can speak for him. I, I think I can speak for him. Um, does does that sound accurate to anybody? I'm going to read that again. All the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are now the possession of the Church of Jesus, which now, symbolically, reigns on David's throne. That is, I'm sorry, not sorry, that's not true. That is another lie, okay? All the promises made to Israel are everlasting covenants, and everlasting, to me, where I come from, means eternal that they're never broken. What did God say? Something along the lines of, as long as there is night and day, um, my covenants with you will stand. I can find that real quick. One thing about me is that I can't stand paraphrasing scripture because that's where a lot of mistakes happen. That's where it, that's where it starts, it's paraphrasing scripture. I will refrain from doing that as much as possible. Here it, here it is. Jeremiah 33, 20, 22. Here is what Adonai says. 
If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that daytime and nighttime no longer come when there's when they are supposed to, then my covenant with my servant David also can be broken so that he will not have a descendant to reign from his throne or Levi'im who are Kohanim. Levi'im and Kohanim are the priests to minister to me. To the degree that the armies of heaven are past counting and the sand by the sea past measuring, I will increase the descendants of my servant David and the Levi'im ministering to me. Okay, so where, where and anywhere in what I just read, does that sound like that God is done with natural ethnic Israel and all of a sudden the church gets all the blessings? Where did anybody hear that here? I certainly didn't. Let us proceed. In its more outspoken forms, replacement theology is aggressive and even dominionist in its outlook, since it alleges that the church replaces Israel in the sense of overtaking her by spiritual succession. The theological jargon for this is called supersessionism, i.e. the idea that Israel has been superseded by the church. Lie. Since the Jews are no longer God's chosen people, God does not have any future plans for the nation of Israel. Lie. The church, not Israel, is now the apple of God's eye. Lie. In other words, the term Israel denotes only those who are Christians, and conversely, only Christians are the inheritors of the covenants and blessings given to Abraham and his descendants. In summary, the church is Israel, and Israel, spiritually understood, is the church. Oh look, there's a list of all of the churches that that uh, are official advocates of replacement theology. Official advocates of replacement theology include the Roman Catholic Church, the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, uh, Missouri Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, the, Episc the Episcopal and Anglican Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the United Church of Christ, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and of course Islam, which likewise claim that it has replaced Israel as God's chosen people on the earth. Ooh, do not get me started on Islam. I'm going to have to make, that's right, you guessed it, another podcast about that issue and when I make this podcast about Islam and the origins of Islam I'm not going to be making it to offend people I'm going to be making it to share the truth about it with people and if you're offended by the truth that sounds like a personal problem Perhaps it should be noted here that some ver varieties of Jewish theology return the favor of Christian replacement theologies by maintaining that Israel will one day triumph over the church, understood collectively as Gentiles or Christians, or more generally as the idolatrous descendants of Esav. According to such Jewish eschatology, in the days of the Mashiach, the Lord will establish Jerusalem as the center central point of the world. And all of the scattered Jewish people will be permanently restored to their ancient promised land. All of the literal promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and confirmed by, Jewish, by the Jewish prophets will be literally fulfilled. 
all of the ancient enemies of the Jewish people, including the descendants of Esav, will be vanquished, and Israel will enter a golden age of peace upon the earth. This is often summarized by certain orthodox, certain orthodox groups, such as Chabad, with the phrase, Mashiach now, Mashiach achshav. I remember that campaign back in Israel. I grew up with that. I lived through that. As we will now see, replacement theology draws its theoretical support from the faulty foundation known as covenant theology. Perhaps you've been wondering why I am almost at the hour mark and I'm not slowing down? Because I can't. Because this needs to get out. This is the stuff that you're not going to hear at church, and you need to. I'm probably going to talk about a lot of things that make most pastors uncomfortable. The Faulty Foundation, Covenant Theology. Many replacement theologians are also advocates of so-called covenant theology, a speculative, a speculative theological system that posits several overarching covenants that God made with all of creation. According to this theological system, first there was the covenant of works in which God promised Adam eternal life if he would obey his commandments. However, since Adam broke covenant through disobedience, God established the covenant of grace in which he would graciously save Adam and Eve and their descendants from the penalty of death. The salvation process itself, however, would be based on a foreordained and secret covenant of redemption in which God the Son agreed to be incarnated and to die as the great redeemer of the fallen human race. All of the biblical covenants, for example, all of the biblical covenants, for example, the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and King David, are really aspects of the overarching covenant of grace that God enacted after the fall of mankind. Covenant theology is an error for a number of reasons. First of all, this abstract system of covenants, works, grace, redemption, is not based on an inductive study of the scriptures themselves, since they do not mention these covenants. But it is determined from invalid deductions made from the New Testament, which are then read back into the language of the Old Testament. As we will see, the primacy given to Gentile theologians who are influenced by Greek philosophy theology greatly influences the reading of the Old Testament for most of these theologians. For example, the Torah reveals that the covenant made with Abraham and his descendants is clearly unconditional in nature. Oh, I remember saying something about that not too terribly long ago. The language of the relevant text is simply unambiguous. The language of the relevant texts is simply unambiguous. See Genesis 12, 1, 7, 13, 14, 17. Oh my gosh, there are a lot of verses in Genesis. Uh, Exodus 2, 24, Deuteronomy 9, 5, 6, 2 Kings. Yeah, there's a lot of coordinates here. Moreover, the covenant ritual itself was expressed unilaterally, Genesis 15, and subsequent testimony, even in the New Testament, corroborates its unconditional nature. Luke, Luke 1, 50, 54, 5, Luke 1, 60, 68, 74, Acts 3, Acts 13, Romans 11. Hmm, hmm, hmm. However, based on preconceived 
theological assumptions, the unconditional nature of this covenant is transformed into being a conditional one now and a conditional one that now does not mean what the scriptures plainly state. However, I'm going to read that again because it's probably did not make any sense. However, based upon based on preconceived theological assumptions, the unconditional nature of this covenant is transformed into being a conditional one that now does not mean what the scriptures plainly state. Well, well you know what that means. That means that it's garbage. Now, while it's true that we cannot completely bracket our understanding of the New Testament when we are reading the Old, it is, it is a poor exec... Okay, wait a minute. Here's a word. Exegetical principle not to honestly listen to the text of Scripture itself in light of its historical context while using the normal rules of grammar, i.e. plain sense. And it's... It, it, and it is simply preposterous to take the promises explicitly given to Abraham and to ethnic Israel and reinterpret them as promises given to the church. In order to rationalize this approach, these theologians, influenced by the Gentile theologians of the past, are forced to use allegory and Greek symbolism in order to apply the terms of the covenant to refer solely to the church. Of course, this exact exegetic approach exegetic e-x-e-g-e-t-i-c do you want to know what that means? I think you do, hold on adjective, serving to explain elucidative elucidative explanative explanative explanatory explicative expositive, expository hermeneutic Hermeneutical. Oh, there's that word that I used earlier. Hermeneutics. Imagine that. Alright, so let's go back. Of course this exegetic approach works the other way around too, as can be seen when the New Testament is forced to read in a way that is not, a, not consonant with the plain sense given in the Old Testament. And an example of this sort of disingenuous mythology, methodology. Man, English is a hard language, guys. Sorry. Let's try that again. An example of this sort of disingenuous methodology is found in the translation given to the Greek word chi. And. I guess chi means and. In Galatians 6.16. It's quoted, As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Which incidentally is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word Israel is not explicitly used to refer to ethnic Israel. Covenant theologians conclude that the Kai before the term Israel of God is best translated as even. However, most Greek scholars have noted that this would be an, an anomalous usage and is without grammatical warrant found in the context itself, i.e. the argument against the Judaizers. Indeed, the plain reading is simply that Paul uses and to pronounce a blessing on believing Gentiles and believing Jews in the church, not to equate national Israel with the church. I think I need to read that again because that sounded ridiculously important. Indeed, the plain reading is simply that Paul uses and to pronounce a, bless a blessing on believing Gentiles and believing Jews in the church, not to equate national Israel with the church. 
Yet another flaw with covenant theology is that it is too simplistic to claim that the covenant made with Abraham is essentially the same as that which, made, which was made with Moses at Sinai or with David at Jerusalem is unwarranted reductionism. The biblical covenants, these biblical covenants, are not progressive revelations of a non-biblical covenant of grace, but are concrete terms of an agreement made by Adonai Elohim of Israel himself with specific individuals. This same sort of reductionism is also revealed in the new covenant promised to Israel in the days to come, Jeremiah 31, 31, 37, and of which the church presently partakes. Covenant theology must posit the church as something that predated the coming of Yeshua, as being composed of the elect of God from all ages and times. However, Yeshua told Peter, Kepha, that upon the rock of his confession he would build his church. Matthew 16:18. And Paul spoke distinctly about the mystery of the church and God's prophetic plan for the ages. Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 3, Colossians 1. Covenant theology must force the plain reading of the biblical covenants into the mold of its system rather than letting the texts of scripture speak for themselves. Another flaw with covenant theology is its use of the allegorical method of interpretation, which forces the literal denotation of a term, such as Israel, to be either not a true denotation or one of a different denotation. In other words, it is the corresponding spiritual reality, which is the real or ultimate meaning of a term of a given passage, not the, not the grammatical historical understanding of the term. The misunderstanding of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants inevitably leads covenant theologians, theologians sorry, to misunderstand the nature of the church itself as a mystery hidden in the purposes of God, but later revealed in the age of the New Testament. Contrary to their view that the church is the elect of God from all ages, the New Testament clearly teaches that it began with the ministry of Yeshua himself. Matthew 16:18. Moreover, the church could not come into existence without Yeshua's death, resurrection, and ascension. Ephesians and Colossians. I'm sure that Les Paul right now is going, yay, they mentioned the ascension. Because nobody mentions the ascension, and it's a crucial part of Yeshua's ministry, just like his birth, life, death, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension all important. Further, the church is composed of those members who have been baptized into the body of Messiah through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Paul's teachings about the mystery of the body of Messiah means that it was not revealed in the Old Testament scripture, Ephesians 3, 3, 6, Colossians 1, 26. Finally, the New Testament never uses the term Israel and church to refer to the same group of people. Even the seed of Abraham is never called Israel in Paul's writings to the Galatians. As we will see, it is, a it is a category mistake to infer that the ecclesia of Yeshua, the kihilah, sorry, we're going to use the Hebrew word, right? It is, a it is a categorical mistake to infer that the ecclesia, the kihilah of Yeshua, is identified with the remnant of Israel. Most seriously, covenant theology insinuates that God changed his mind about national Israel and that the olam, eternal nature of his covenantal promises given to them are subject to nullification. 
But if Adonai changed his mind regarding national Israel, what prevents him from changing his mind regarding the church and its future? The church must remember that it is graciously grafted into the olive tree of Israel and made partakers of the covenants given to Israel. In fact, the only reference to the new covenant, Brit Hadasha, in the entire Old Testament is found in Jeremiah 31, 31, 37, where it is explicitly, explicitly stated that the Jewish people will continue to exist as a nation. I'm going to read that again where it is explicitly stated that the Jewish people will continue to exist as a nation as long as there is a sun and moon seen in the sky. Just read that to you. I just read that to you. This is further confirmed by Paul's teachings. This is further confirmed by Paul's teachings about national Israel found in Romans 9.11. Replacement theology is a dangerous and false doctrine that has consistently led to anti-Semitism and false eschatological, eschatological views. False eschatological views. Just as we believe that Adonai will keep his promises to the church, the Kehillah, so we will believe that he will keep his promises to national Israel, including the future restoration of Israel as the head of the nations during the kingdom of God on earth, of Elohim on earth. When the Lord Adonai Yeshua comes back to earth, he is heading straight to the na to national Israel. He is heading straight to national Israel and to Jerusalem in particular. There, he will be finally received as Israel's king and savior and will, and will rule during the millennial kingdom. The fourth temple will be built, the millennial temple, Ezekiel 40, 48, and the nations will come to, to Jerusalem to pay homage to the Lord God of Israel and the Elohim, Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed One of Israel. All the nations will celebrate the Feast of Sukkot, and those that refuse will be plagued with, with drought. Isaiah and Zechariah. Ze Isaiah 4, Zechariah 14. Okay then, dear listeners, believers and non-believers alike, that was replacement theology right there. I have two more theologies to go over, and I really, really wanted to cram these two theologies into one podcast, but I don't think that's going to work. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. I'm going to keep you hanging with a bated breath for episode 7, which is going to be about separation theology. And after separation theology, there is remnant theology. And after that, it gets really, really interesting because then there is a summary and a conclusion. And the summary of the conclusion, I keep on scrolling down, and I keep on scrolling down to the, all the way to the bottom, and it starts talking about uh, the New World Order and the all-seeing eye and the, how these symbols are pre prevalent in modern-day Jerusalem architecture. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that crazy? So, it's going to get really, really interesting, boys and girls, brothers and sisters in Messiah. Stick around. I promise, uh, I promise it's going to get a lot more interesting if you stick around. Okay, um, this is your host. Gaudi Hire of Finding Higher Ground, signing off, bidding you a 
Shalom, peace, and God be with you. May Adonai Elohim be with you. May he show you his existence. Uh, may he validate his existence in your life in a mighty, mighty way. Be safe. I love you as he loves you. Nishtamea.